You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is uh, Father James Scholl, and I want to continue the program on um, political philosophy and its introduction in history. And where we are in the reflections is that we have gone through uh, the, uh, some writers of the classical period. We, we touched on Aristotle and Cicero, St. Augustine. Um, we talked about St. Thomas. Uh, we did Bloom's book on Shakespeare. And um, we talked about um, people like Locke and Hobbes, um, Andrew So. Uh, we looked at my book on the uh, limits of political philosophy. And where we are now is that I would like to encourage you to read a small, short book uh, by the English economist and philosopher E.F. Schumacher. And this book is called A Guide for the Perplexed. It's quite a short book. It's about 120, 30 pages. It was published in 19... 77 by Harper Colophon, and it is a remarkably insightful book. And I want you to read it at this time in this course, this program, because it puts many things together, both what we've seen and what we will see. And it is a provocative book, and at the same time is one that is uh, relatively easy to read, I think, and deserves many uh, different readings many readings, as I said. Now, the title of this book, A Guide for the Perplexed, as I like to point out, was not an original title of Schumacher. It is the title of a medieval Jewish philosophy book called The Guide for the Perplexed, which was written by a man by the name of Moses Maimonides. Now, the importance of this book of Maimonides was that it was written at the period of uh, Thomas Aquinas and also some of the Arab philosophers in the early Middle Ages, not so much the early Middle Ages. And the book was caused, which the reason the book was written was because they rediscovered the writings of Aristotle uh, at this time, and were able to translate them into various languages. Now, Aristotle had existed, uh, as we know, uh, in the post-Greek uh, period in certain Latin translations, but basically the, the text of Aristotle was either lost or not used in most parts of the world. It did remain in some Persian eras and some Greek uh, manuscripts but it wasn't particularly known. And what was known was Aristotle's logical works, but not a good deal of the other of Aristotle's works. And as we have said that even of Aristotle's works, we only have his, what might be called his class notes or his, his um, uh, text notes, and not so much his literary forms as we do of Plato. But in any case, when Aristotle came back into um, the West, 
Um, part of it had to do with the fall of Constantinople to the Muslims. Uh, part of it had to do with the translation of uh, some of um, his works into uh, Latin, uh, particularly under the guidance of uh, William and Morbeka and St. Thomas. And so that the presence of uh, Aristotle caused a great perplexity among the in a different way in all three revealed religions because it seemed all of a sudden that Aristotle was able to explain almost everything. And Aristotle did not come from the revelational tradition. He came, as we saw, from the tradition of Greek philosophy, Greek reason. And so therefore this setup of the problem of the relation between a reason and revelation, in some sense, the most fundamental thing which we talked about often in the, uh, the limits of political philosophy, uh, that question then came forth. And so the question was, how do you reconcile what Aristotle said, which didn't come from Revelation, with the things that were in the various revelations, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran? And how they resolved this question was a crucial issue. Uh, for both Jews and Christians and Muslims. And if it wasn't solved, uh, it meant uh, that there must be something wrong with the, either with reason, in which case you don't have to follow reason, or with revelation, in which case you don't have to follow revelation. Or as St. Thomas says, you have to be able to see what is valid in reason, what is valid in revelation, and how they are related together. Uh, so this book, A Guide for the Perplexed, uh, has uh, 10 chapters to it. Uh, they're very interesting chapters, and I'm going to go through and mention something about each of the chapters as we go along. It's a very informative book, and it's a book in political philosophy in a way that I always ask the students, in what sense is this book a book in political philosophy, because it is also a book in philosophy and in history and in just about everything else. The introduction of this book contains a um, quotation, which uh, Schumacher cites in both uh, Latin, is both in his Latin form and in his English form. It is from the 19th chapter of the City of God. And the phrase says this, Nulla est homini causa philosophandi nisi ut fiatus sit. That is, no one has any reason to philosophize except with a view to happiness. From St. Augustine. Now that's a very remarkable phrase. The reason why we want to know what things are is because in some sense we recognize that the knowing of what they are is in the general uh, category of our happiness. Our happiness has, in some sense, to do with what our knowledge is about, and what our knowledge is about has to do with what reality is about. Now, Schumacher calls his first chapter uh, a chapter on philosophical maps. And this chapter was written during the time of um, communist rule in um, Eastern Europe and in Russia. 
and he begins by telling the story of him going to St. Petersburg. <clears throat> and when he goes to St. Petersburg, he uh, sees these buildings which look like they're churches. And um, so he asked the uh, tourist agent about that, that um, is this building a church? And the tourist agent says, no, it's not a church. It's a, a, it's a hall or a gym or whatever it is, <clears throat> which they have taken over and used it for other purposes. Uh, so, therefore, it's not a real church. And so, therefore, uh, Schumacher asked, well, where are the churches? And she says, the tourist agent says, well, there are no churches on the map. We don't put the churches on the map. But Schumacher says, but I'm standing here looking at one. And she said, well, that, that, is, not, that is not part of the map. And so he uses this example, namely of a map that doesn't show what's really there, as his paradigm of our educational system. That our educational system talks about many things, but it leaves out of discussion the most important things, namely what is our happiness, what is human life about, what is its purpose, what is good and what is evil. Those kind of questions are considered not to be either scientific or questions subject to answers, and therefore they are left out of our education. And so Schumacher, as a young man, somehow he was in England and spent time in an English a detention camp during the war. He was a young man, uh, as a German national. And uh, uh, during that time, he uh, became a kind of well-known, very intelligent young man. And uh, so when the uh, war ended, he went to uh, Oxford, which was considered the uh, most important, or uh, still is, uh, most important, or one of the most important universities in the world. And when he got there, he was perplexed. Well, that's where he gets his ideas. Now, what perplexed him? Well, what perplexed him was that he was told that the university was going to study everything. But as a matter of fact, he studied only certain things and not the things which were of primary importance. And so what he wants to point out was that the methods by which they studied these things, um, uh, uh, mainly those which came from Descartes, namely that we're only going to study those things which we can know certainly, and those things which we only know some things about, we're not going to really study seriously. Uh, so he said that this is a uh, idea to do this is a certain um, guarantee that you won't know what you need to know for a human living, and so that the uh, philosophical maps, are, uh, namely the curriculum that you're given in the university, is inadequate, and that therefore that um, therefore that you are being taught a kind of a uh, reductionism uh, under the name of, of complete philosophy. Uh, that doesn't allow you to study the most important things. So on the basis of that uh, analogy, um, he points out that um, uh, there must be another way of uh, teaching and learning about uh, reality, uh, and that way must be um, a more adequate and more complete way. Now, he has a genius uh, in a certain sense of pinpointing uh, in this first chapter, uh, it's only the first chapter is only um, uh, 14 pages long, easy to read pages, which I suggest that you read these things 
carefully as you go through and note um, that uh, what he says about the relationship between using your your common sense understanding and your your mind to understand what is going on. So he says the first thing in the second chapter he calls it the levels of being, and he says the first chapter second uh, uh, thing that we need to know is that there are different kinds of real levels of reality as he calls it. There is the mineral level. Uh, the mineral level is uh, inert. Um, some people want to make everything alive and give everything a soul, but in practice, that their metals and, and rocks and so forth have no inner life, but they are a real thing. They have real weight. They have real color. They have real function. They're real. They're, 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 they're matter. He says the next level um, of being, he says, is the level of, of animals. Uh, not of animals, but of um, plants, that is say living things which are alive, which have a uh, principle of life, and which have a certain internal order to them. They, they uh, begin, they grow, they reproduce, and they, they die. Uh, then you have the next level of being, which he calls the um, animal level of being. Uh, and on the animal level of being, he says you have not only uh, the mineral level in it, that is, say, the animals have a certain weight, certain mass. They also have life to them, but they also have sensory powers of some kind. And these sensory powers enable them to see and to hear, to smell. And, um, and uh, this is within the same kind of a single being. Uh, then he says that the man has um, a highest, higher form. Not only does he have the three lower ones, but he also has his own uh, power of reason, of intelligence. And that power of reason and intelligence enables him to, to know things. Now, therefore, he says that man can be looked at two ways. He says you can be looked at as um, um, uh, having, first of all, the uh, mineral uh, uh, plant animal and reasonable levels in one being, or you can look upon man uh, from from the inside out. So that's where most of us have to begin. And that's why Schumacher says you have to begin with your experience. And our experience is that the first thing we know is not is not what a plant is or what an animal is or what a uh, piece of matter is. The first thing we know is ourselves in some sense. So we have a certain consciousness of ourselves. And so the, if we want to understand what a plant is or what an animal is, we have to think about it not only in terms of what we see them running around and doing or not doing, but in terms of our own bodies. So our own uh, mind, we can reflect back on, on our own mind, and we can say, if you want to know what is an animal, well, we are animals also, and our animal powers, our sensory powers, are all changed in a way so that they are directed to the idea that we know something uh, spiritual, as that we know abstract forms. Uh, we know what a man is, what things are, what a tree is, as opposed to bumping into individual trees. Uh, and so that therefore man is, uh, if you want to understand what a man is, first thing you do is uh, you can take away his uh, sensory powers, his uh, uh, animal powers, sensory powers, 
then you can take away his vegetable power, then you can take away his mineral power, but you can see that in doing that, you eliminate what he is. So he is one being uh, in which all of these things are integrated together in order to enable him to live, uh, to, uh, to, to act, and to know. And so therefore, that the, uh, he gives a certain schema about what man is. So man is a being uh, who, uh, who uh, is made up composed of matter. He weighs a certain thing. He composed of vegetative powers, that is, say, your fingernails and your hair are vegetative powers. Uh, if you want to know what they are, you can kind of look at yourself because they're part of you. Uh, then your sensory powers, your eyes and your ears, uh, things that the animals have sometimes in greater precision than, than we do. And then your spiritual powers, which no other being, uh, no other material being has. Uh, and so he points out that this. Uh, way of looking at things, this hierarchy, so to speak, of things, um, is simply reflecting upon upon ourselves, upon uh, knowing what we are. And so, therefore, uh, the um, uh, uh, steps that we take is, uh, the steps that we take are, uh, in order to understand what things are, the first thing we have to know, in some sense, is uh, is what we are. So he says, now, if you take a look at all of these um, levels of being, so to speak, um, uh, the, the material world, the uh, vegetable world, the uh, animal world, and our world, uh, he says that you uh, notice that, first of all, he says some people want to discuss all of this in terms of evolution, and he says evolution, uh, as he'll say later on, is a a way of categorizing things, but if it's simply a theory that says something came from nothing, he said it's in, it's it's incoherent. Um, uh, something doesn't come from nothing. Something comes from something all the time. Um, that's something that has it in itself. <clears throat> but if you want to use evolution as a way to describe uh, the variation of things, there's nothing wrong with that, and there's nothing uh, particularly um, uh, anti-religious about that. But he says, if we take a look at all of these things, he says, as you go up the ladder, he says, you'll notice that there's a certain amount of things that are happening. Uh, uh, there's a greater and greater interiority, for example. There isn't any real interiority to a rock. There's some interiority, however, to, a, uh, say, a dandelion or a plant. That is, that's one being is coherent within itself. It has its own life. Uh, if you go to the animal, he has a more inner life. He can see, he can follow things, he can run around, he can know. And when you come to our life, uh, we are more in, even more in, in, uh, internal than that, <clears throat> that we can kind of know that we know things and understand things. So he says there's a certain progression. And it looks like that progression leads to another higher level of being, uh, which is uh, more or less pure spirit itself which would be the logical next step, uh, and which uh, indeed seems to be the next step. But he said all of these things in us are integrated, not like we're four different kind of people, but that we are one person with these uh, different powers that uh, go along with our uh, being these, uh, these people, a, a particular person. And so this interiority uh, um, that we have is a very important thing. It gives the example, for example, of going into a 
uh, classroom. And you go into a classroom and you see, say, 50 different uh, students in there. Um, you can see them with your eyes. You can see what they different. Uh, each of them different, looks different. Does their hair different? Wears different clothes, perhaps. Uh, have different um, expressions on their face, different way they comb their hair. But he says, you don't know, your eyes don't tell you the interior of that, that person. The only way that you can know the interior of that person is that in person, in some sense, manifests his in, uh, interior life to you. Uh, so that, therefore, that the um, interior life that we have, uh, in a sense, is invisible to us. So the most important thing about other people and ourselves is not just the fact that they weigh so much and that their hair grows and that they can see, but that they have an inner character, an inner life, a life of, of action and, and intelligence and indeed virtue and vice. And so therefore this uh, 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 tradition is that we need in some sense to know ourselves. Now he says, having arrived at that point, he says there are two steps which he calls, uh, in the Latin word he uses the word adequatio, which means the, the, um, the equivalence of a thing to another, or the um, conformity of a thing to another. It comes from a phrase in St. Thomas which says something like, um, knowledge is the conformity, the adequatio, of mind to matter. So truth is when uh, your mind acknowledges what it sees in the world. So if I say that tree is a tree and it is a tree, then my mind confirms, my judgment confirms that that is the source of my powers are adequate to the knowledge of myself. And so he points out that the five exterior senses is what he does in chapter four. The five exterior senses, the hearing, the seeing, the touching, the tasting, and the smelling. These are different powers in us which reveal to us different aspects of the same thing out there. Uh, what does it look like? What does it feel like when I touch it? Uh, uh, how, how much does it weigh? Um, uh, all of those particular kind of things. Well, how do I, what kind of a sound does it make? How does it smell? Uh, all of these kind of things are our exterior things. And it turns out that we have powers in us which correspond to the qualities and the things in the world that we're trying to know. And so that uh, he points out that, that therefore that uh, we do have powers which enable us to know that. But if that's all that we know, that is say if we only know what a person smells like, uh, what he sounds like, what he uh, looks like, and so forth. We don't really know them. Uh, we just know sort of about them. So that's why he got the fifth chapter. It's called the Adequatio Two, And by that he means that if you're going to understand uh, someone, uh, it's not sufficient uh, for you just to know the exterior parts of the thing. You have to be able to know their interior parts. Now, how do you know that? Well, you can only know the interior parts to some extent if they, if you reveal your uh, ideas, your thoughts, your worries, your character to others, and if they reveal that to you, which they may or may not do. And so, therefore, the 
uh, if you want to know um, uh, what a person, uh, what suffering means, for example, uh, you have to suffer in some sense yourself. Uh, you have to have some experience by which you understand what this is. Or take laughter. If you don't know what laughter is, you'll never get what laughter is uh, by, by virtue of some kind of uh, philosophical explanation. Uh, you have to simply experience it and know it, and then reflect upon what you have. And so, therefore, uh, so it's, uh, the question, therefore, is, uh, and therefore all classical wisdom is wanted to know, how is it that we come to know other people? And uh, as we go, go along, the uh, very highest things are friendship with other people. This consists precisely in conversation and knowing uh, what the other is like. He then uh, does a remarkable thing, and he talks about what he calls the fourth uh, fields of knowledge. And uh, what this is is a schema. So he's got four chapters on this. So chapter uh, six is called the uh, four fields of knowledge, uh, field of knowledge one. Now, what he does with this is the field of knowledge one is the, uh, let, me, let me tell you what he does. First of all, he says there's four steps or four ways to look at this. He says, first of all, there's what he calls the I inner. That is to say, how, what am I inside of myself to myself? That's the thing that's most immediate to me as an individual person. Um, then the um, second is, let's suppose there's me and then there's you. You are another person and you have an interior uh, soul and interior life and interior activities. Now, the thing is, I know mine, but I don't know your interior activities. So, therefore, I have to ask the question, how do I know anything about your interior activities? Or is it simply unknown to me, so it's impossible for me to know anything about another human being? Well, that doesn't seem to be true either. So, he says, the next thing we need to know is, um, how do I look? to others from my outside? What do the people see when they see me? You know, when sometimes uh, 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 I may think I'm uh, doing something really great and everybody else thinks I'm doing something terrible. And uh, and I don't understand the difference. And so then, therefore, the third or the fourth one, which is sort of the scientific thing, is uh, what does the world um, uh, uh, look like to itself? How do you explain it, in other words? So he says, the first thing uh, to know is what goes on inside of my world and then what goes on inside of the world of another person and then what do I look like uh, uh, to in the eyes of other people and then next, what do I actually observe uh, in the world around me? And so therefore, he says, breaks it down. He's very good this way. He breaks it down. What do I feel like? Uh, uh, what do you feel like? What do I look like and what do you look like? And so therefore he um, comes back to this and the, uh, the first field of knowledge, therefore, and this is a very interesting section for students because he says that all of um, uh, philosophy, all of um, Schumacher was very much interested in Oriental and uh, other kind of philosophies of religions. And he pointed out that almost every Religion and philosophy have some kind of, a, of an explanation of, uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, knowing myself. So he brings up the Delphic Oracle, which says um, that uh, our command is, 
the first thing we should do is to know ourselves. And so unless we know ourselves, uh, what kind of a being that we are, we will not understand what kind of being anybody else like unto us is. And so therefore that the cultivation of self-knowledge, of uh, becoming honestly aware of our virtues and our vices and what we do and this kind of thing is a meditation, in other words, reflection on what we really are, that I really am, have a life, that I really do have an interior life, I really do know, is the first step in, in, in knowledge. Now remember, all of this is in the context of understanding understanding what kind of a being participates in politics, what kind of being transcends politics. And so therefore the perplexity is uh, really what kind of a being are we? So he said in the next uh, section in uh, chapter 7, the second uh, field of knowledge is namely, um, namely, how do I know anything about you? How do I know anything about the interior life of another person? Well, the, the theme of this is very interesting uh, kind of thing, which uh, um, uh, Schumacher points out that the reason, the only reason I can know the inner life of somebody else is A, they tell it to me, but they can tell it to me, but if I don't have any experience or general knowledge, because I haven't reflected on myself and I don't have these experiences, perhaps, I won't understand what they're talking about. So therefore, that the... Um, that the condition of my understanding what goes on in somebody else's life, somebody's really sad or really sick or really, uh, so uh, we used to say, uh, save me from somebody uh, who never experienced sickness because if they never experienced sickness and I tell them I'm sick, they, won't know what I, they don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, so but somebody who's also been sick can sympathize, understand with what we're going on. So Schumacher, it drives this point home very well that that uh, the condition of our, uh, or our ability to know somebody else, uh, to know what goes on in somebody else's life, uh, is conditioned on our knowing uh, what goes on in our own life. And so he develops that theme in the seventh chapter. In the eighth chapter, the third field of knowledge is, is my awareness of um, how others look, uh, how I look to others. So therefore, I've got my own interior life, but I also, uh, uh, I also am observed by and interact with the lives of others and, and my friends and uh, neighbors and so forth. And how do they see me? I mean, I might think I'm doing something that's very, uh, very wonderful, uh, but in fact is that nobody else thinks that. I may not be using the right words. I may be insulting people, and I don't know that. And so therefore, I need to correct uh, what I do, that's why what you mean by manners and what you mean by somebody telling you, look, um, I, you're very harsh there. You're not, you're, somebody telling me that my, uh, what I think I'm doing may not be uh, what in fact uh, everybody else is perceiving me to say. And so therefore we, we, we need to be, we have to be uh, corrected by somebody. He tells a wonderful story about, um, about the, the man that goes to hell. And he gets down to hell, and uh, he wanders around, and uh, there's one guy down there that uh, everybody really doesn't like, and he's really a totally uh, annoying kind of person. 
And as he goes on and, and realizes uh, uh, that the the, reason, the one that nobody likes is him, and uh, the reason they don't like him is because he didn't uh, uh, didn't understand his relationship to other people or take any efforts uh, to make himself lovable and reasonable and kind to other people. And then he comes to the uh, last section, which is uh, uh, <clears throat> how does the world look, and. Um, he points out there that the world itself uh, needs to be understood and, and can be understood, uh, but that its understanding is a, um, a condition of objective knowledge and scientific uh, approach, which is not ideological. So he, he gives the example about, um, let's suppose you want to understand uh, the life of a dandelion. So, well, if you, if you have to kill the life of the dandelion in order to understand what it is, you are not understanding what life of the dandelion is because you just killed it. What you're examining is its body and not itself. And so it's, it's the living thing that teaches uh, you uh, what it is. And so, therefore, he, he goes through a very interesting uh, thing, which I suggest that you uh, pay attention to, because he says that we think very often, and from a scientific view, that, that the we're trying to understand the uh, uh, the most um, clear things. So as Descartes said, you can understand the most clear things, that, which are the most obvious things, but they're not the most important things. And so St. Thomas says, St. Aristotle, or Aristotle says that uh, a little knowledge of the highest thing is really far superior than certain knowledge of things which are really not relatively so relatively important. And so that uh, as we go up the ladder, we find it's more, more and more um, difficult in a way to know what's going on, but at the same time it's more rewarding because that's where the real reality is all about. And then finally, he um, so he summarizes again in the end of chapter 9, the uh, four fields of knowledge, and I, it's a very self-instructive thing. And then finally he comes in chapter 10 to what he calls the two types of problems. And uh, this is a very interesting chapter, actually, as he comes near the conclusion. And he says, um, um, what do we do with all this stuff that we got regarding knowledge? And he says that there are two types of uh, knowledge, uh, two types of problems. And he says one problem is what he calls solved problems, and the, the other problem is called, obviously, unsolved problems in a sense. Now, what's a solved problem? Um, a solved problem, let's suppose you use the example of a bicycle. Uh, let's suppose you want to invent something that gets you, at say, uh, five miles an hour instead of walking, uh, a certain thing without a motor and using, and using uh, your own uh, physical power. Uh, wh what would that be? And so, therefore, you, if somebody suggests you invent this bicycle, you invent the bicycle. And once the bicycle is invented, and you know people know how to use it, then uh, the bicycle doesn't create the wonder uh, that it did once the first one that made it. So the first one that, that made the bicycle, the first one that made an airplane, and the first one that made a rocket ship uh, was more famous than anybody else who could make it later on because they already knew how to do that. Now, they always continue to perfect it and this kind of a thing. But, but the point is that the problem how to do it is uh, basically solved. It doesn't mean somebody else can't come along and solve the same kind of problem, but if it's already been 
solved, it's no big deal. But the unsolved problems, he said, there are some kind of things that we, um, there are some kind of things that we do not want um, to be, in a certain sense, solved once and for all, or even can't be. And so therefore he suggests that the unsolved problems are those things which we want everyone uh, uh, to go through. So they got to go through. Uh, we want everyone to know what uh, life is about, what uh, virtue is about, and what uh, life is about, what, what, what really our whole thing is about. So we want, we want certain things which each of us needs to, uh, to do uh, by ourselves. We don't want somebody else to do it for us. Chesterton used the example of uh, dancing. And he says that, uh, well, there's such things as professional dancing, but he says, uh, he says some things are worth doing even if you don't do them well. Uh, we want everybody do, to do them even if they don't do them well. So he used the example of dancing. Well, even if you don't do it perfectly, and if you say, well, because I can't dance perfectly, therefore I'm not going to dance at all, it means you never dance with anybody. And the same thing is true if you never think about everything, you never try to confront any kind of a fundamental issue, then you never, you never arrive at the point about understanding what it's all about. And so therefore the unsolved problems are the most important problems, not the least important problems. And so we want everybody to have to try and solve the problem about what is immortality, what is life about, what is God about, what is that, that's what our life is for. And that that's what um, uh, education is for, as he says. And he finally comes to the uh, interesting uh, conclusion where he talks about, in his epilogue, where he brings out the point that uh, he's a member that Schumacher was an economist. And uh, he says that um, everybody is always talking about the problem of poverty. And he says, as a matter of fact, he says the problem of poverty is a solved problem, not an unsolved problem. He says, we know, we know how to solve the problem of poverty. The problem of poverty is not solved because we don't know how to do it, but because of the unsolved problems. That is to say, the problems of greed, the problems of sin, the problems of disorder, the problems of corruption, of, of problems of lack of intelligence, and so forth, that prevent the proper use of the knowledge that we have about, about the thing, uh, about how to solve the thing. Uh, so that therefore the, the problems of virtue, the problems of order, the problems of sin, the problems of disorder, are themselves what are the problems. Unless we understand that and face those kind of questions, then we can never solve the problem itself. So in conclusion, I just want to go through this with you uh, and encourage you to read this remarkable book because I think what it does in the course of what we have been doing, it puts everything together in a, in a very luminous way. And this book is a book to be read again and again. And so I encourage you to get the book and to read this book, A Guide for the Perplexed, and understand that uh, perplexity itself, in a certain sense, is a good thing. It's a good thing that we are perplexed, and therefore we are incited or moved to seek to figure out and straighten things out. The end of the lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.